Every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the fourth episode of the second season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. Kayla and Jordan could not make it here today, but I do have a very, very special guest on this podcast episode. She is Hannah Walner. Woo! Hey, hello. <laughs> so special. Hannah and I uh, went to East Strasburg University together. Uh, we also work together, and uh, she's actually been on investigations with me before. And you and I were on one this past weekend. We were. It was a great time. Uh, the Perry Mansion in the New pa- Hope. That's right. We were in New Hope, Pennsylvania. We investigated the Perry Mansion. So a new episode of Ghost Encounters is coming out soon. It'll come out just in time for spooky season. Um, I always remember the one investigation that you and I went on oh um, years ago. Uh, we were at the site of a Civil War prison in Elmira, New York. And how do you feel about ever going back to Elmira, oh New God. York? I, like, it, it's a complicated feeling because the town itself is very bad. <laughs> there was not, like, the, the most bumping thing going on up there was an Applebee's. And that was it. They had, like, an Applebee's and a Wegmans. Yeah. And uh, everywhere else was just kind of sad and gray. Uh, but I, I have a friend who's from Elmira. Actually, she's from the town. She's like, yeah, never go there. Don't go to Elmira. So... But Elmira does have a site of a Civil War prison that housed, uh, obviously, Confederate soldiers. And uh, there's no structures or anything there, but the land is still there. And this place was absolutely awful back in its time. There was one small, I wouldn't even call it a river, what was it, like an extra large pond where this overcrowded prison, it was overcrowded by almost 10,000 people, and that's where they all bathed in and got their drinking water. There were so many disease outbreaks. It was awful. Um, but some of the things I remember is that we got EVPs with southern accents, that which is so really cool. cool. We heard the sound of, like, horse uh, galloping, and obviously there's no horses around in Elmira, New York. Just cars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cars passing through Elmira. Uh, but, yeah, that was probably... I, I remember the one EVP that we got out there where uh, I think it sounded like they were saying, hey, Yank. Yeah, they like, said, hey, Yank. And that was so, <laughs> that was wild. It was just very topically appropriate, yes. you know, for the location. And it was, I don't think it was something that we ever, like, even could have, like, it, it wouldn't have occurred to us to to create this on our own. You right, know? Like, right. And just the EVPs that we got just clearly shows how the paranormal is real for all you disbelievers out there. Like, <laughs> what are the possibilities that at the site of a Civil War prison we get an EVP that says, hey, Yank, and various other EVPs with a Southern accent, yeah. you know? Um, it's just a uh, memory that I have with you that will always be in, <laughs> in the back of my mind. Yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> and this past investigation was was a lot of fun. New Hope was a really cool town. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited for this episode of Ghost Encounters to come out. And I will let everyone know when it is released. And everyone should take a watch and follow on YouTube. It's going to be awesome. 
I'm stoked. I'm stoked to see what we got. <laughs> Me too. Because it was all, it, the, the atmosphere out there was great. Yeah, and the story of the house is very interesting. It's just a very wild house. Like just this, and the stories of things that happened in there. Like the one room was used as a surgical room for the doctor taking care of uh, soldiers in the Civil War. And obviously, most of them didn't make it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it's just about as close to really ancient history as you can get in the United States. You yeah, know? pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since I have you on, I always ask uh, guests, what was your first ever ghost encounter? Ooh, that's really hard. Because I don't think that I have ever had a paranormal experience outside uh, stuff that I have done with you. Gotcha. You know, okay. we, yeah, because we've been on we've been on uh, investigations together, but like I don't know, the house I grew up in was built in like the eighties. My parents were the second people to own it. It wasn't really on the land of anything right. interesting. Uh, well, I always ask. So, some, <laughs> there, you'd be surprised at how many people have had stories from childhood, from places they went to, the home they grew up in. But I always ask. But I am delighted to know that I was able to give you your first ever ghost encounter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. You know, it was life-changing stuff right there, you know. You Very get cool. to kind of clip the other side. Yeah. So outside of being a great photographer and videographer, oh. um, there's something else that you do that I wanted to mention. And... Because it falls in with this podcast, at some point we are going to do an episode on cryptids. Oh and no! You love cryptids. <laughs> I do. But you also run Paint Squatch. Could you t could you talk about Paint Squatch? Uh, okay. So I started doing Paint Squatch a little bit before you know COVID, um, where I was making. Because I, I like to. I like. I'm an artistic person. I like to draw. I like to paint. Um, and so I decided I wanted to embark upon a uh, an art an art project. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been kind of like a, a little dream to have maybe a gallery show sure. at some point in my life. So I started doing these little tiny like three by three canvases with uh, cryptids on them. Um, what I love most is that the pictures on Instagram is always it's a sasquatch it looks it's a sasquatch glove that you're wearing holding <laughs> the cryptid art and that's the picture and it's just, it's so funny. You're telling them how the sausage is made, you know that's that's not me in the sasquatch hands. Oh, that's it's the not sasquatch you. in the sasquatch hands. So it's actually sasquatch. It's totally hundred percent sasquatch paints them, not me. Oh, that's 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 very interesting. <laughs> yeah, for those big hands, he's really got some fine detail. <laughs> it's impressive what you can do with those big. Where hands. can people follow Paint Squatch? Uh, currently, it is just an Instagram account. So I am, uh, where the Sasquatch is at Paint underscore Squatch on Instagram. Very cool. Go give Paint Squatch a follow. Check out some of the artwork and maybe purchase one for yourself. Ta-da! Uh, I know a little side project you have. You don't really have an account for yet. You've been making Coraline dolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, they look so realistic. You're making Coraline <laughs> dolls of people you know, and it's just, it's really cool. Yeah, um, I've been doing commissions based on, you know, photos that people send me of themselves. Um, and I've done a couple that are, like, uh, kind of... I don't want to call them horror merch, but they're characters from horror movies. Yes. Um, I did... Wait a minute. Uh, Fluffy. 
Yeah, I did. I did Fluffy from um, Creepshow. Yeah. It was Creepshow 2. Dude, the detail you put in that was absolutely stunning. The fur on it and the, the, the shape of the mouth and the teeth, the, the blood, everything put together so well. Um, if any of you are interested in a custom Coraline doll or horror piece, she is the person to go to. So reach out to Hannah if you want one of those. Um, but while we were uh, working one day, you started talking about something called the Franklin Expedition. Yes. And you got so passionate <laughs> <laughs> when you started talking about this. And as you were telling me the story, I sat there and thought, huh, how many expeditions have somewhat ended in tragedy and cannibalism? <laughs> <laughs> So this episode is called Expedition Cannibalism. In 1848, the Franklin Expedition's two ships, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, disappeared with all their crew while searching for the Northwest Passage. All 129 men perished, and their fate is one of the enduring mysteries of the age of polar exploration. Numerous expeditions were sent out to find them, and strange clues led to theories being proposed to explain what happened. Dark rumors of cannibalism only made the mystery more compelling. However, the remains of what was left is what makes the story more terrifying. Can you tell us more about the Franklin Expedition? Okay, yes. Uh, after some exhaustive Googling, <laughs> um, <laughs> see, the first, uh, the first thing I ever heard, the first time uh, I ever heard about the Franklin Expedition was on the Ask a Mortician YouTube series. Okay. Um, Caitlin Doty talked about it because the... Getting a little bit ahead of myself, there were some bodies that were found right. of members of the Franklin Expedition that were really, really well preserved. Well, it was cold up there, so... <laughs> cold, dry, um, you got a, a good recipe for some pretty killer natural mummies. Um, but I, I'm... I have a, a pretty weird interest in mummies, kind of uh, as a sort of physical object and or bridge between, you know, the the living person who had, you know, a personality right. and thoughts and fears and desires, and the, you know, the once the soul has fled the body, you're left with this husk. This this casing this vessel <laughs> yeah uh it's the bits that people left behind and they're kind of uh unstuck in time right these these like weird relics of humanity uh and some of them resulted from the franklin expedition which uh the expedition took place as already stated 1848 uh the british admiralary which is basically the navy had, uh, there was a, a higher up in the British Navy, and he decided that because he was, you know, in his 80s at mm -hmm. the time, and it was getting time for him to either retire or die. I mean, back then, <laughs> the age that you lived till wasn't very high, and this guy's already 80, yeah, and he's still going on that's one last... Was this his, like, his one last expedition? Yeah, it, well, it wasn't his expedition. He was, he was too old to start out on the expedition, but he was... Uh, in charge, and he okay. uh, he was in charge of selecting the ships, uh, the captains of the ships. So he didn't actually go on. He did not go. I was gonna say because these just, expeditions were months long. Like oh my god, months, <laughs> he years, died uh, halfway through. Yeah, there are some. It, it was like normal. 
to get out there and just die on the open water where people are yeah. not supposed to be. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're not supposed to be supposed to be out on the ocean. Um, but regardless, uh, British Navy decided they were going to mount this expedition to find the Northwest Passage. And what the Northwest Passage basically is, um, is a convenient sailing route from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean uh, to facilitate easier trade with Asia. Right. Uh, so I guess, you know, the eternal British quest for those spices. Right, you know? <laughs> but this passage doesn't even exist. Not as such. Like, there's no... Uh, there isn't, like, a, a big channel right. up there. You know, there's no, like, nice little fjord where you can just kind of scoot around the North Pole. Right. Like, you can go through a bunch of... Icebergs and yeah, glaciers. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's icebergs, there's bays, there's rivers. You Basically, you kind of have to go through all these, uh, like, landlocked waterways in Canada to try and get all the way through, and it's yeah. really... It's hardly worth it. Right. Uh, and <laughs> the risk of crashing is way more than just taking a longer route. Yeah, and which is not to say that the typical routes were any easier. Uh, part of the reason that they wanted to find the North Northwest Passage to begin with is because sailing around the tip of South Africa was also very dangerous and it took was. a long time. Or you could go the other way. Uh, I guess you could go. You could sail straight at North America and go down all the way around Cape Horn right. in Chile, and then you'd have to go back up, uh, sail around the continent again, and eventually <laughs> you would end up in Asia. Right. And by that time, it, it took a long time. You had to supply. You needed water, which is heavy and hard to transport. Food, all kinds Food. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's a logistical nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> so whichever way you want to swing it, it's it's a nightmare. Um, so they were looking for an easier route to kind of, I don't know, take the edge off at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so it was, a, it was a relatively common thing to search for. You know, there were a lot of expeditions mounted. Right. But it was I mean, this... Most of the world wasn't really explored at this time. And well... Who knew what you're getting into? Yeah. Uh, at this time, they had really... They had just about mapped the entirety of the world, like, lower than the Arctic Circle. Gotcha. Like, the Arctic was the only bit that they hadn't really explored yet. Um, so, it was really the white whale, yeah. you know, to for an appropriate <laughs> nautical metaphor. Um, yeah, it was the white whale of, you know, at the time of British colonial expeditions. Uh, so... He was looking for this. He wanted uh, the the higher up in the Navy, whose name I didn't write down. I think it was Brown. Uh, he wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be the guy who sent the guys out, who found the Northwest Passage, honor and glory forever till the end of time. Right. Um, for a man who didn't actually go on the expedition. Yeah. But. <laughs> no skin in the game. Uh, which, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, to have actually heard the reason for it now. I always kind of just assumed it was some rich guy who decided he wanted to do it. It was some rich guy who decided he wanted to do it. Right, as it know. always comes down to. But <laughs> he actually had a legitimate reason to want to find it. Yeah, know. rather than, you know, just for funsies. Uh, but anyway, the man selected to lead the expedition was Sir John Franklin. Uh, he was um, an officer in the British Navy, and he was actually fifth on the short list oh. 
for <laughs> to be captain of the expedition, Did to be in charge. Turn it down. Yes, actually. So uh, would I. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. I think, but the 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 first choice, um, he decided that he didn't want to do any more Arctic expeditions. He was getting too old, and they were too dangerous. Right. The second choice, uh, he decided he had just gotten married. And he promised his wife he wouldn't go on any more dangerous <laughs> Arctic expeditions. So, uh, really, you know, saved his life right there. Yeah. Because uh, so he wanted these, to stay home. <laughs> all these excuses, which are legitimate, and then it'll come down to the fifth person, and here he is. Yeah, he yeah he decided he was going to go for it. And he, he was not particularly young either. Uh, Sir John Franklin was, at the time, 59 years old. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, the captain's got to have someone with some experience, so... Yeah. Never going to be, like, a young guy. It's, he's got to have experience. Mm-hmm. Has you know if this guy ever went to the Arctic before? Uh, he had. He okay. actually went to the Arctic. In addition to being a veteran of multiple wars, he mm-hmm. fought in the French Revolution. Uh, he fought in the War of 1812 and then the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so he was experienced in battle, but he had also been on two other... Arctic expeditions. Um, the first one, I suppose, was not that noteworthy, uh, but the second one was the Copper Mine Expedition, uh, where 20 of his men died due to starvation, mostly, well, yeah. uh, which I guess, again, typical. You know, yeah. you're, you're going to a place where human beings are not supposed to be. Right. Like, <laughs> no chance of finding any kind of food anywhere. So yeah, it's, well, you have what you bring. Yeah, you got what you got, and you're probably gonna die. Uh, <laughs> but the the survivors of the Copper Mine Expedition, they survived by eating whatever they could, um, which ended up finally being the leather that uh, made up their boots. Oh. They ate their boot leather. <laughs> oh. So they uh, one of the one of the sources that I, I was reading in my research, they were like, oh, yeah, uh, John Franklin, he had this this funny nickname. It was, they they used to call him the man who ate his own boots. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't really think that that's a nickname. It's just accurate. Yeah, it's-, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a descriptor. Uh, homie was eating shoe leather. The person who was serving under him, I guess as not necessarily co-captain, but I guess first mate, mm-hmm. um, was a man called Francis Crozier. And he he was actually also on the short list of people who could have captained oh, the Franklin gotcha. expedition, okay. um, but the uh, the higher ups in the British Navy decided they did not want him to be captain <laughs> because he was Irish oh, and they didn't want yep. they didn't like the Irish that much. Yep, they didn't want an Irish person to be the legacy of, of this. the Northwest yeah. Passage. They didn't want okay. to give the Irish that one. So I'm like, oh great, British. Awesome. Uh, but under under the two of them, uh, there were 129 other sailors who would be departing mm-hmm. from Britain. Uh, the two ships that were chosen for this expedition were called the HMS Terror. Perfect for story. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and the HMS Erebus, which the Terror, I mean, everybody knows what the Terror means. It's yeah. very appropriate. Uh, and... I was thinking, like, why? Why would you do this? Why would you name this ship something so terrifying and then send it to the Arctic 
where you're probably going to die. <laughs> well, I mean, it was probably used before. It was. Well, so it was probably used in a battle or something, it right? It was a warship. That it makes was, sense. Yep, it was a okay. warship, and it was, uh, I guess, it was a bomber. It was a bomber. Uh, and it was actually previously used in the American Revolution oh. and in the very battle during which Francis Scott Key composed the Star-Spangled Banner. Wow, did yeah. not know that. She was there. The this terror ship has was there. seen some days. Truly. Wow. Um, so it was, she was already an old ship. She'd yeah. seen battle. Um, she'd been repaired, I would imagine. Oh, right. Uh, but she was also retrofitted to be an Arctic explorer oh, ship. Oh, cool. Um, in addition to having uh, the hull reinforced... So as not to be completely bashed to <laughs> to splinters right. by you know, icebergs yeah. and rocks and whatever you encounter out there, um, it also had the boiler from a steam locomotive. It had a steam engine inside oh. it, so it wasn't just uh, sail powered. Right. So you wouldn't, I guess, get stuck. Uh, I'm assuming the boiler let off calmed. heat to help. Mm -hmm. It uh, it was a, it essentially had central heating. That's cool. Uh, which, you know, obviously would keep the crew more comfortable, but also was helpful to keep the, the ship from freezing. Right. You know, in, uh, on the outside. Uh, and also, I wrote something down interesting here, and I think I got ahead of it. But, oh yeah, it had, um, it had a library. The ships had oh, libraries. really? Which, yeah. Damn. Like, oh, that's kind of sweet. Uh, <laughs> Gives everyone something to do on this long journey. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that said, what does Erebus mean then? Ah, see, the Erebus was named... Also, again, if you're thinking of this as a warship, it makes more sense. Okay. Uh, but the Erebus is named after the Greek god of primordial darkness and chaos. <laughs> For an expedition like this, we have two very aptly named ships. Yeah. It's, oh, God. You look at that and you already know shit's going to go down. It's going to go down and it's going to be bad. Yeah. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know about this. Another of the interesting features of the Terror in the Erebus was that they had uh, pipes for a desalination system so that you wouldn't necessarily have to carry as much fresh water with you. They had, they had that back then? Yeah, they had desalination systems. Wow. Don't ask me how it worked. I had no idea they even had... They had that back then. That's... Yeah. You just blew my mind. Thank you, human <laughs> ingenuity. Um, but they were... Supplied for three years, they had enough canned food to to last them for three years. That's a lot, actually. Yeah, for that amount of men. Yeah, that's yeah, 129 guys. That's a good supply. For, well, if they rationed it very carefully, they could make it last five years, allegedly. Holy crap! Um, that's... Yeah. Wow. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot of food. A lot very of packing. Surprised. Truly, um, but the the food that they had canned. For the expedition, they ha they had this all prepped and ready to go. Right, I'm sure. Before taking off, however, they uh, the company that they hired to produce and can their food uh, was kind of under the gun. They were rushing, so it turns out that some of the, in addition to uh, some other problems, some of the some of the food was not properly cooked before it was canned. Oh. So it contained botulism. Which is that's that's the kind of food poisoning that kills you, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> and addition to in addition to the botulism, uh, the soldering on the cans was not 
uh, done correctly. So it wasn't really sealed properly. So, yeah, so it wasn't, it was already going to make you sick. It was already not sealed correctly, but the soldering contained lead. A lot of lead. And lead does not mix with food. No. <laughs> no, it does not. Um, so they're getting potential food poisoning of spoiled food and lead poisoning. Yes. Sheesh. So we're already maybe not starting out on the best foot. I mean, they don't know this, but, like, they're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, other than that, though, um, when it came time to launch the ship in May of 1845, um, the launch was uneventful. They Everybody got on the ship. They packed their things on the ship. And they just left? And they left. <laughs> no waving goodbye and horn. I mean, I, you know, I suppose just, they did. You, you know, know it was like... Just... You know, everybody said goodbye to their partners and just sailed off into the sunset oh, for uh, parts unknown. After that, the last time they were seen by other European people was at Baffin Bay. They were seen by a few fishermen. Okay. And um, this is that kind of story. For 170 years, nobody nobody saw them again. Wow. No, uh, no European person at any rate. Uh, because literally everyone died. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the first winter they were out to sea, um, they had managed to cross the Atlantic, everything was going okay, uh, until they were, they became iced in at a place called Beachy Island, mm. uh, and it's, you know, it's not spelled Beachy, B-E-A-C-H, it's beachy with two e's gotcha yeah so it's i mean it's a cold place yeah we're not we're not talking some kind it's of not a, yeah. there. Uh, <laughs> and they they packed the ship in snow and they were just waiting out the winter and they like they hunted they fished they rationed their food wow and 130 dudes just hung out in the arctic Jeez. just doing at least they had the library. I mean, know? yeah, they had that, but that's a long time to just kind of it is. They were be stuck there. Yeah, um, but they eventually they did escape from Beachy Island. Okay. Um, at least most of the men did. Uh, unfortunately, there were three casualties on Beachy Island. Um, they were John Torrington, William Brain, and John Hartnell, and. Near as anybody can tell, because their bodies were discovered, uh, um, they are the three well-known Franklin Expedition mummies. Oh, cool! So they're yeah, their bodies were exhumed and uh, and found to have been mummified. Uh, they were found on Beachy Island, and was there like a grave site or something? Like yeah, there were three headstones, three grave sites, um, and a cairn built on Beachy Island. Oh, wow. Um, where they had left notes basically saying, gotcha. you know, the terror in the Erebus were here, right. uh, all is well, except for, you know, these poor souls yeah. who, near as anybody can tell, uh, they didn't say in the note what these men had died of, but um, later research determined that they had died of tuberculosis and or pneumonia. Oh, wow. So, as Makes sense. Yeah, probably not a great death. Um Anything special about their, the way they looked? 
Mummified wise? They look like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I because I how's the, how's the best way you can describe what they look like for everyone listening? Oh god. I'll tell everyone to go look up some yeah, pictures. Yeah, Google it. You gotta Google it or don't if you're you know, if that's gonna make you upset, don't Google it if it's gonna make you upset, obviously. <laughs> but uh, if you wanna think about just eyes open, teeth bared just leathery looking blue and yellow dead guys. Gotcha. Like, okay. Yeah, they're all kind of, uh, their clothes are very well preserved and you mm-hmm. can still see the colors that they wore. This one guy, uh, I believe it was John Torrington. I don't know if this is his real hair or not that you see in the photo, but he's got this beautiful lo- head of like long blonde curly hair. Oh. And I'm like, is this a wig? Is this his hair? What are you? <laughs> you have no right to have this beautiful, ha- this you know, beautiful hair right. after 170 years in the ground. But like, what are you? So basically, like the clothes are well preserved, the hair is somewhat well preserved, but their skin is purpley blue, leathery, probably shrunken. Yeah, eyes wide real. open. Mm-hmm. Did their gums and lips recede or anything? I, I suppose their gums did recede. I, they're pretty dried out yeah. at this point. Um, but they really look like they could blink. Ooh. They, they look <laughs> like they could blink at you. And they're really they're really wild looking. They're wild looking mummies. That's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, a little a little bit of a nightmare, but they're they're very cool to look at. Just historically, <laughs> um, wow. You know, you got to think like, you know, prior to death, these. These things were people, right? You know. Uh, so what happened uh, after they left Beachy Island? Beachy Island. Um, they continued to sail. At one point, they came to a fork in the road. Uh, I believe they chose to. Uh, they could have gone, I guess, either further north or a little further south between two dividing waterways, um, and they chose to go down the Victoria Strait. Okay. I'm not sure if that was the north or the south one, but that's what they picked. And eventually, they reached King William Island in what is today known as Nunavut in Canada. It's, it's, oh, none. Okay. It's spelled. <laughs> How is it spelled? <laughs> N-U-N-A-V-U-T. None All of these it. words that sound like something, but they're not the thing you're thinking of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there's actually funny story... Um, my boyfriend, his family is from Newfoundland in Canada, yeah. and uh, we actually met a guy who is a friend of his family who teaches in none of it. He teaches, oh, that's cool. yeah, he teaches at like you know a school where there are a lot of uh, kids from indigenous communities. Wow! Uh, but apparently, food prices up there are insane. Oh, I can imagine. It's oh my hard god! To get stuff up there. Yeah, but also like. Come on. You know, yeah, it's right. like it's like thirty dollars for a little punnet of strawberries. It's ridiculous. Oh, but how you sp- how you supposed to get your vitamin C, man? You, people are gonna get scurvy, and it's twenty twenty two. None of it. Yes, that's where we're at. We are on King William Island, uh, and that is where everything started to get real bad. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> we are now in our second winter. Uh, it is, I guess, our third winter, maybe. Uh, either way, it is September twelfth, eighteen forty-eight, and the ship become the ships become icebound. Right, because as we know, up there, this doesn't melt. 
Yeah. Just all ice all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess theoretically it would have melted in spring, but the I the two winters that we're aware of with the uh, the Franklin expedition where they were like iced in were two of the worst winters that of the course. Arctic That's has always ever how seen. these stories go. It's always <laughs> oh this weird storm or the worst winter. It's always how these stories go. Some kind of freak thing happens and everybody dies. Uh, but they yeah they got snowed in. And just like before, they were like, okay, we'll hunt, we'll fish, we'll wait right. this they out. They went through this once already. They thought they could probably wait it out and get through it again. Mm-hmm. But turns out they could not. The ice Ooh. did not melt in the spring. Uh, they were stuck in the ice on King William Island for 18 months. Wow. Which is, it's just an unimaginable length of time, yeah. really, um, to be stuck I, I can't in one place. Yeah. I mean, we all went through COVID, and we were locked down for just a few months, but imagine being locked in an ice-bound ship for over a year. With, like, 130 other guys. You haven't yeah. seen anybody else. You can't write home. Like, <laughs> nobody knows where you are. There had to be a couple of weird sexual things going on. <laughs> Always. <laughs> you know, you just, sometimes you get bored. You get bored, it's real cold, somebody starts spooning. <laughs> my mind's telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yeah. Uh, but, you know, regardless, uh, they had also started to run out of food. Well, of course. Uh, we were, we, I guess we are now uh, entering the third year. I'm, I'm assuming the boiler's not running. Uh, I don't know about that. Did the boiler break down? I don't know. I mean, what ran the boiler? Uh, yeah, probably. They said steam engine. Yeah, so I guess you would have to have coal. But you're going to run out of it eventually. Yeah. And it's not like there's trees up there. No. It's just... (laughs) Eventually you're going to be breaking down, like, I don't know, chairs and clocks and stuff. Probably, whatever you can Cannibalizing the ship and throwing it into the boiler. The ship ship itself. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Or maybe it was just too much for, you know, steam power and or wind power to handle. Yeah. The ice gets real thick. It's maybe a little bit rocky out there. You don't know what you're doing. Um, Around this point in time, uh, John Franklin dies. Oh, okay. The captain dies. Captain Franklin of the Franklin Expedition is dead. The men are running without a captain. Yep. Well. I mean, someone else is point in charge. Yes. Um, going to be the dude that they didn't want. Yeah. It was the, the Irish guy. Um, it was Francis Crozier was now the acting captain of the Terror and the Erebus. Um, there was another man under him that I didn't write down his name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Crozier was the person who eventually made the decision to leave the ship the ill-fated decision to leave the ship uh and how did they know which way to go (laughs) i i suppose they had a compass um but still like yeah i it was it was not a good life choice it was not i don't know what better choice they necessarily would have had uh but they decided it was time to put all of their things onto uh, sledges, mm-hmm. like big big sleds, yep. and trek out into the wilderness of 
snowy winter King William Island. Um, why would they make this decision? Oh, they were, they were, right. They were aiming for a Canadian trading post where okay. they thought they could find help from other white people. <laughs> <laughs> they, they thought they were going to make it to this trading post, which was 800 miles away. Wow, that's a long distance. Yeah. Cold. What what do they what do they bring in these sleds? Um, well, they brought a grandfather clock. Of all things. <laughs> they brought that's books. a necessity <laughs> on a sled to truck eight hundred miles in the Arctic. Yeah. You bring books and a grandfather clock. And granted they ding they did bring their food, but at this point, and I'm sure they weren't aware of it, but at this point, the food was, the remainder of their food was spoiled in, right. due to the improper canning. It was full of lead, and it was probably only making things worse. Right, because as we know, lead poisoning will make you go crazy. Yeah, it's it basically causes full-blown psychosis if you have enough lead yeah. in so your system. So throwing a grandfather clock in the sled to bring it somewhere probably didn't seem like a bad idea. Yeah, it starts, it kind of starts, <laughs> if you have a complete break with reality, it kind of starts to make sense. Yeah. Like, oh, this is a thing that's valuable. It's worth money. Let's, we got to take this with us, <laughs> you know, uh, especially, especially if they're already far gone enough that they think that they can make it yeah. 800 miles to a trading post. Um, but they... Health has started to rapidly deteriorate. Yeah. Um, everybody's kind of not doing great in the head. Uh, the the lemon juice that they had canned and also full of lead and probably botulism uh, was no longer as potent in the vitamin C department as gotcha. it was when it was canned. Right. So people are losing teeth. They're getting scurvy. That, <sighs> I think, can also have, like neurological side effects yeah. the scurvy um not to mention like probably got some ptsd going on oh i'm sure that's you've been stranded with everything that keeps happening and just making it worse and worse yeah. and worse not to mention each one of these sledges weighed around eight thousand pounds oh <laughs> and they're dragging them through the wastes in the arctic they could have gotten so much further if they didn't have it they yeah it was it wasn't a good call, um, but they, nonetheless, they venture forth uh, with their very heavy sledges into the killing uh, Arctic cold, and as men would die, you know, where they stood, uh, I guess in the traces of these sledges, they would drop to the ground and be picked up and thrown onto the sledges, which... Which adding more weight to less men. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, life, life choices are made, um, and everybody is so delirious that they have basically had complete breaks with reality. Yeah. Up until this point, there have been other expeditions sent out to try and find these guys. Because it's been so long. Yeah, it's been several years. Nobody's seen them. Nobody's heard from them. They've obviously not reached their destination. They've not found the Northwest Passage. They've definitely not found that Canadian trading post. Yep. Um, so, uh, John Franklin's wife, uh, her name is Jane Griffin. Uh, she gets on the case of the British Navy and says, Hey, 
we need to start looking for these guys. We need some more expeditions to go and find my husband yeah. and all these other like 130 guys that y'all sent out into the wilderness for capital gain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Usually I don't go in for stuff from psychics, right? Right. But okay. I thought this was kind of a really wild story. Um, when, uh, when I guess news started disseminating that, uh, Jane, the wife of, uh, Sir Franklin, Sir John Franklin was, uh, looking to mount this expedition to go and find him. Um, there was another shipbuilder who was not necessarily connected to the terror in the Erebus, but like tangentially aware of them, uh, and that the expedition never came back. Um... He actually contacted her and said, look, I have kind of this weird situation. Turns out this man, whose name was William Coppin, Mm -hmm. um, he had had, in 1849, his three-year-old daughter, Louisa, who they called Wheezy for short. Wheezy? (laughs) When you're a little kid, that's weird. If you're like an adult and somebody's (laughs) calling you Wheezy, you got to make people stop. Um... (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you're a little kid, it's like, oh, that's cute. Let's call her Wheezy. But uh, anyway, so uh, his daughter, Louisa, passed away Mm -hmm. uh, at the age of three, which is very sad. Um, After her death, the family started to notice weird things happening in the house. Like they would see balls of light Hmm. and they would hear knocking. And uh, they all decided that this was Wheezy. Okay. This is this right. is the spirit of Wheezy. She came <laughs> back. She's still with us. And they started setting a place for her at meals. Oh. And as it turned out, she also could kind of like conduct a little séance and pass along information and people like some of her siblings would hear her oh. like with their ears even though not everybody in the house could or would. Right. So, who knows if the kids are just like making it up? Or if, uh, you know, maybe there's actually something verifiable going on there. Right. Um, but Wheezy relayed information through her sister, Anne, that she knew what happened to the Franklin expedition. Wheezy the ghost. And for, little kid, and for little kids to say this, like, that's... That's wild. Yeah. Like, for, yeah, for a little kid to be like, oh, yeah, my dead sister knows about this. Yeah. Or for, like, a dead like three-year-old. like her dad built the ships and is talking about it every day. Yeah. And, like, I don't know how much information was just available to the general public, but, like, to, like, little kids. Well, knowing the British, they they probably would have, I mean, like I said, they probably kept it under wraps a bit. Yeah. You know, know, if, like, oh, the expedition didn't go so well, and these dudes are probably dead out there. Like, um, but anyway, uh, channeled by her sister Anne, Wheezy describes this scene um, where... Uh, she can see the Arctic, like, laid out in front of her with two ships and snowy mountains and, like, narrow channels and bays. And uh, when she was pressed further about information on specifically John Franklin, uh, she said that she could see a round-faced man uh, climbing the mast and waving his hat. And this was this was in 1849 when yeah. he was still alive. Right. So he was alive, regardless of whether or not he was able to climb the mast. I don't know. But um, 
some of the other bizarrely specific information that she provided were the names of the ships. She told them that they were called the Terror and the Erebus. Um, and she also uh, gave them Prince Regent Inlet and the Victoria Channel, which, you know, as I brought up earlier, yeah, it wasn't they called were, that. Thing. Yeah, they were at the Victoria Strait, which it wasn't necessarily called the same thing, but it's right. you know, it's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, and also, it wasn't called that on any map at the time. It was just something that they had right. been calling it as they were, you know, living there in their right. ship. Um, yeah, and when when some of the uh, the other expeditions that were mounted, uh, Jane took this all very seriously because you know I'm assuming right. she wanted her husband to not die. Uh, so one of the one of the uh, expeditions that she sent out to find them uh, actually tried to get into the Victoria Strait. Uh, but at the time, it was iced in, and they oh, couldn't. Yeah, they so they didn't get to it. Yeah, they would have found it though. Oh yeah, it wasn't because it was in, in there. <laughs> Holy crap! It was it was iced in there. Who the knew this clairvoyant there. little girl? Yeah, talking to her dead her sister, sister yeah. is giving information about where to find them. That's crazy. Just, yeah, startlingly they, they, accurate. If it wasn't frozen over, they would have found them. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, they might have already left the ships by then. I don't know, but. Who knows, but they at least would have known what had happened more yeah. by getting there a lot sooner. Uh, so expeditions go forth, and they uh, they trace the route. They're going through all the various little inlets and bays and looking for the terror in the Erebus. Uh, they find notes that were left behind. They find the graves on Beachy Island. Okay. Um, and they also finally start talking to the indigenous people, um, who I believe are the Inuit, and they, you know, because they live out there. Yeah. They know how to survive in the Arctic. They're, you know, they know how to do it. They've been living there for several thousand years, yeah. and they've got that on lock. Um, and it turns out that they did know. They did know what happened to the Franklin oh. Expedition. <laughs> All you had to do was ask, yeah. guys. <laughs> you only want to ask the white man. Well, the other people know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and they actually had some pretty awful stories to Ooh, share. I'm sure. It's because if you thought it was bad with scurvy and botulism and lead poisoning and psychosis and everybody dying, it gets worse, you guys. Uh, <laughs> the... One of the one of the sources that I found was a really really good blog. Um, it was the Herodotus History blog, and I hope nobody like gets mad that I brought that up. But they they describe this camp of Inuit people uh, who are waiting. It was basically like elderly people and women mm -hmm. and kids. Just you know, they were sitting in their uh, I guess in their lodge. And they saw these eight or nine figures shambling out of the the snowy wastes, and they they had their teeth bared, and they were blue, and they were shrunken, and they like they tried to speak to them, uh -huh. um, but these figures were incapable of human speech. And their, when touched, their skin was cold to the touch. They were basically, like, they were zombies at right. this point. Uh, they were very nearly human beings. Um, 
But nonetheless, uh, the Inuit people invite them into the lodge and, you know, they're trying to comfort them, they're trying to warm them up. Uh, but these guys, they're not really responding. They they can't speak. Mm-hmm. They they seem kind of terrified. Yeah. Um, when, you know, there was a hunting party sent out. When the hunting party returns, they build a lodge for these men uh, doing the decent thing. And they even gave them, like, a couple of seals so that they could eat them and, you know, regain strength and right. maybe start to you know, warm up, communicate, get their shit back together. Uh, but when they returned to check on them in the lodge, uh, they had gone and the seals were untouched. However, they did find some bones, human bones, of, you know, previous members of oh. this party. And it appeared that the bones had been stripped and Ooh. they uh, have been eating. Hey, they had been eating each other. Yeah, I, I know from watching a documentary about cannibalism, and that there are some parts in various other countries where these third world tribes do cannibalize, and it pretty much makes your mind go crazy, almost like mad cow disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in developing countries, there are certain cultures that practice uh, ritual cannibalism. Mm. And sometimes it's uh, to honor ancestors. Mm-hmm. They'll eat, you know, the body of their ancestor after that ancestor has died. Um, and you can... I think I think in certain cultures they call the disease Kuru. Okay. Which is a prion disease similar to mad cow disease. Yeah. Um, and I think it's... Um, I think... a prion is like a rogue protein that it's not alive so you can't like kill it like you could a virus or bacteria mm-hmm. and it just gets into your brain and it like yeah. eats holes in your Th- brain that's your where brain this whole zombie like half living half dead thing comes about because that's what they end up being like yeah i've seen videos of people who have this weird disease because they ate human flesh for so long and they literally seem Half dead, half alive. It's yeah. so weird. Their their body is just kind of like on autopilot. Yeah. And they can't. They're just almost nothing. You you eventually start to lose parts of your brain that make you you. Yeah. And I guess it it reserves all your um like your automatic functions. Like you can still breathe and blink and digest, but like right. you're gone. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I think that's Creutzfeldt Jakob disease. I think that's what they call it, but like, don't don't quote me on it. I don't know. I know I know it's either Kreuzfeld Jakob or Kuru or Mad Cow. It's there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, and there are actually certain tribal cultures that have developed like a genetic resistance to prion diseases because they they practice ritual cannibalism. Wow. So it's it's not unheard of. <laughs> Basically, with everything that's happened to these men. No wonder they are just pretty much nothing at this point. Yeah, if they're eating each other, they're not doing good. Um, they they have the lead poisoning, which can cause some neurological right. side effects. They got vitamin deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Everything. They've been out in the cold. They're just damaged beyond basically all repair. Yeah. They're they're walking dead men at this point. Um, so probably despite any help that they could have received from. The Inuit, uh, they were not going to make it. Yeah. 
but yeah, they, this is when, you know, Inuit people are telling these stories when they are interviewed. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, when, when British sailors on further expeditions bring this news back to the British Navy, like, it's immediately denied. <laughs> of course. Immediately. Like, no, no British person would ever be so uncivilized as to eat, you know, another, another British person. person. Yeah. Like, they, the, the indigenous people must be lying, you know. So, of course, you know, it was, they were not believed. It was swept under the rug, um, which kind of led it all to be swept under the rug. Right. Uh, and that was really the last that anybody heard from the Franklin heard from or about the Franklin expedition wow. until the 1980s. Oh, when there were bodies discovered. Oh, yeah, they found actual bodies of the members of the Franklin expedition, wow. and these were not these were not mummified. These were okay. not like you know human burials treated with reverence. Uh, it was basically just a like a mass grave. If right. a grave at all, it could have just been like a pile of bones. Pile of bones, yeah. <laughs> and these bones uh, were covered in tool marks. Oh, which means someone was cutting flesh away from the bone. Yep, the the bones had been scraped of their flesh, probably to eat. Yeah, well, I'm sure. And some of the long bones, like from arms and legs, uh, were cracked to mm-hmm. try and get at the marrow, which like. If an animal's not going to saw through a bone with a knife no. and crack it, yeah, that's, that, that was people. They're, yeah. they're eating each other. At this point, wow. it's confirmed. Cannibalism confirmed. So, did they ever find the ships? They did. Um, with more help from the local Inuit tribes <laughs> people, um, who had actually seen the ships and known of the ships for quite some time, um, even having been on board one of the ships um, and discovering several crew members dead uh, with a fire still lit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they basically said, yeah, you know, um, if you go out... They basically said, like, oh, yeah, if you go out into these bays, you'll find the ships there. That's where we last saw them. Wow. Um, but in, there was really nothing done about this in, you know, true British fashion. Right. Uh, they really weren't believed. Nobody really took it seriously until 2014. This is relatively wow, recently. Yeah, this is, that's, is relatively recent. <laughs> like, I remember when this happened. I remember hearing about it and being like, why would they call these ships the terror in the Erebus? <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was a an expedition mounted by the Canadian Parks. It was led by Parks Canada. There was an expedition led by Parks Canada, um, and it found the Erebus in 136 feet of water (laughs) in Wilmot and Crampton Bay. And this ship, the Erebus, was not in good shape. It was very rusted. It's how many hundreds of years old at this point. Yeah, it was basically falling apart. However, two years later, in 2016, um, they found the Terror in oh they found it in terror bay of they course found the, the terror, terror was in terror bay <laughs> lovely Which it's probably named after the ship <laughs> but uh that's where it was they found the ship uh that was in 80 feet of water and probably pretty visible yeah um and they they 
uh, mounted some dives, some people went down there, mm -hmm. and everything was really pristine. Really? It's very, very well preserved down wow. there. Um, they brought a couple of artifacts back. They're, they're in great shape. Uh, everybody was really excited. Yeah, I'm um, sure. Because everybody wants to know, like, when what? did this really start to go south? What yeah. happened? Did the, the members of the expedition, did they feel themselves deteriorating mentally? Um, so they, the Parks Canada was looking to mount another expedition. Uh, and that expedition was slated for March 2020. <laughs> oh, COVID. So that <laughs> yep. was put to a screeching halt. Because <laughs> of COVID. Um, so that didn't happen. But it's the ships are still down there. Um, and I am sure that something's going to happen. Maybe, probably, you know, later rather than sooner. Right. Because I think everybody's still kind of getting back on their feet after COVID. Right. Uh, right. To actually either bring the ships out or salvage what they could. And yeah. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, so something in the future. Uh, we may not have any concrete answers right now, but um, yeah, in, in our lifetimes, we may learn the secrets of the terror in the Erebus. Well, that is enormously terrifying <laughs> and I'm gonna go put a jacket on put the heat on we're gonna take a break and we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by the colony meadery if you haven't tried mead yet it's alcohol made from honey and it's the fastest growing alcoholic beverage in the United States it's all natural totally gluten-free and delicious and one of the best meaderies in the world is right here in the Lehigh Valley. Heading into their 10th year this fall, the Colony Meadery has two locations, 905 Harrison Street in Allentown and 211 East 3rd Street in the heart of Bethlehem Southside. Stop in and try a flight of meads, grab some bottles or cans to go, and experience some of the best booze in the world. They've got flavors ranging from tart and quaffable lemon laws and Wu-Tang Crayon to cinnamon vanilla series of tubes and even the sweet heat of their mango habanero. Learn more at either location or at colonymeadery.com. Ghost Encounters podcast and show is sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your online presence with their expert social media marketing, photography, and video productions. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. If all you spooky people are enjoying the Ghost Encounters podcast, hit subscribe and give us five stars. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ghost Encounters PA. To watch full episodes of the Ghost Encounters show, visit ghost-encounters.com. The Spooky Shop is now open for Ghost Encounters merch. Visit ghost-encounters.com and click on Spooky Shop. And we are back. So that was a fascinating and wild story. A little bit the, of a deep dive. Yeah. No pun intended. Ah, <laughs> that doesn't come until after 2022. <laughs> Um, but I looked up uh, two other stories that had to do with expeditions and cannibalism. I'm going to start with the Jamestown Colony. The harsh winter of 1609 in Virginia's Jamestown Colony forced residents to do the unthinkable. A recent excavation at the historic site discovered the carcasses of dogs, cats, horses, um, and it's known that they were actually being consumed during a horrible time called the Starving Time. Oh, but a few other newly discovered bones, particularly though, uh, tell a far more gruesome story. 
the dismemberment and cannibalism of a 14-year-old English girl. And this was actually somewhat recent as well. It was like 2012, 2013, where they discovered um, that they discovered these girls' bones and discovered that she was cannibalized. Because again, it had tool marks on the bones and certain things were cracked and cut in certain ways. And that's what they know that what happened to this girl. Who knows how many other people were cannibalized, but they have the proof of this one incident, at least. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) when it comes to cannibalism, I think one incident is enough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Much is still unknown about the circumstances of this grisly meal. Um, The researchers who found her actually call her Jane. Um, They're not sure whether she was murdered or died of natural causes, um, or whether it was one person or multiple people that decided to butcher her. Um, But, alas, they discovered this is what happens. Um, Historians have always gone back and forth with Jamestown, whether or not cannibalism actually happened. Um, But, given that her bones were found in a trash pit, cut, chopped, had tool marks, it was clear that her body was dismembered for consumption. That's rough. That's a rough life. Very rough. You're 14. And... People are unsure of how horrible the harsh conditions were um, for the colonists of Jamestown. Um, But they know that the conditions were harsh enough that it definitely would make them desperate enough to eat other humans and perhaps even commit murder to do so. The colony was founded in 1607 by 104 settlers aboard three ships, the Susan Constant, the Discovery, and the Godspeed. But only 38 survived the first nine months of life in Jamestown, with most succumbing to starvation and disease. Some researchers speculate that the drinking water, uh, poisoned by arsenic and human waste, also played a role. Uh, Because of the difficulties in growing crops, they arrived uh, in the midst of one of the worst regional droughts in centuries, and many settlers again. were unused to the harsh agricultural labor. So again, here we have, you had the worst winter uh-huh. ever recorded, <laughs> and now we have one of the worst droughts ever recorded. <laughs> and were, were the settlers, like, um, were they just, like, regular people? or were They, they were just regular people. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I, I don't, of the survivors, I mean, I know there were sailors on the ships, because there had mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. How many, though? I don't know, because, like I said, only 38 survived. They were really dependent on supplies that were brought by subsequent missions, um, as well as trade with Native Americans. How much trade can you do when you don't speak each other's languages? Yeah. You know? And I guess when you think that, you know, the other party is lesser than you. you And it's winter. The Native Americans are probably, you know, doing what they need to do to survive and not worrying (laughs) about the white men that are over here. Um, But by the winter of 1609, extreme doubt hostile relations with members of the local uh, Powhatan Confederacy, and the fact that a supply ship was lost at sea put the colonists in a truly desperate position. George Percy, who had been president of Jamestown during the starving time, wrote a letter describing the colonists' diet during that terrible winter. Here it is. Having fed upon our horses and other beasts as long as they lasted, we were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, rats, and mice, as to eat boots, shoes, or any other leather. 
And now famine, beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that nothing was spared to maintain life and to do those things which seem incredible as to dig up dead corpses out of graves and to eat them. And some have licked up the blood which hath fallen from their weakened fellows. Wow. So he kind of he kind of cops to it without copping to it. Yeah. Know? It's like we definitely ate other people. Yeah. But like... And it was very difficult to read that because it was written written it was written in old english and the words are written very very strangely yeah, the but... spelling <laughs> it, it, the spelling is not yeah but he pretty much admitted that they were eating they started eating dogs cats rodents they ate their horses and it just got so bad that they had to dig up graves and eat the corpses i think i think i would I think I could probably dig up a corpse and eat a corpse before I killed a dog. Honestly, same. <laughs> I love Honestly. my dog. I really yeah, love my too. dog. Like, Honestly, same. Yeah. We talked about it during COVID. I'm like, look, man, look, if, if we die in here of COVID, the dog the dog can eat me. It's okay. You guys can eat me to survive. The dog can have some. It's fine. Don't eat, don't eat my dog. <laughs> oh. Uh, when the archaeologists uh, were studying Jane, as they call her, um, it appeared that the, her brain, tongue, cheeks, and leg muscles were eaten, uh, with most likely the brain eaten first because it decomposes so quickly after death. Um, there wasn't really evidence of murder. Um, they suspect that this was a case of hungry colonists simply ate what remaining food was available to them, which unfortunately was dead bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose at least they didn't they didn't kill her, you know. Right. Not There's like no. Her. I'm sure it happened in some cases, but in Jane's case, it didn't look like there was foul play. For her sake, you know. I you know I think I saw that they did a like a facial reconstruction mm-hmm. of her. What was I've left because her movie. her skull was kind of bashed in crudely. Yeah, to get um, get brain. The other thing that they noted was, yes, there were tool marks on the bones, but they weren't done in a butchering fashion. So most people knew how to clear the flesh off of certain animal bones. But back back in the day, but like you, you wouldn't kn- you wouldn't know how to do that to a person. Mm-hmm. So it just you know made more evidence that it was just people. It was survival. It was survival. Yeah, yeah. cannibalism. With all that being said, I mean, these people went through awful conditions, awful things happened, they did awful things to each other, so now this area of Jamestown is pretty haunted. Cool. Um, Jamestown has long been shadowed in tales of the supernatural. Those brave enough to visit the island at night have heard disembodied voices, screaming, and crying. Many orbs can be seen with the naked eye, and shadowy figures stalk the living. Also reported across Jamestown are objects moving on their own, archaeological tools found scattered, and reports at dig sites of artifacts uncovering themselves as if wanting to be found. Oh, that's neat. I don't know how much I believe in that one, but that's pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) I, when I was a kid, my dad's kind of like a history buff. My dad's a bit of a colonial history buff. Um, and hi dad. Shout out to my dad. Uh, but we we went to Jamestown when I was a little kid. We did Very like cool. the colonial Williamsburg yeah. and 
Um, it's really, it's wild out there because they have like people in costume and yeah. they have like some reconstructed little log homes and like a little log church. And it's, it's wild to think about, you know, the stuff that actually went down there yeah. instead of the cute little grandma in a mob cap like <laughs> pounding corn, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they ate a kid. Yeah, you know? this place was kind of tragic. But with that, with what you just described, what I have found as a paranormal investigator is that when you preserve history in a place like that, you preserve landmarks or buildings and you have artifacts and you have people walking around in those clothes, it kind of enhances the supernatural, mm -hmm. right? Versus whether you just demolish everything and build new cities on top of it, it kind of goes away. But trapping that history kind of then traps those souls as well. Do you think that that points to like an intelligent kind of spirit energy? I would have to be there to find out. Um, a lot of historic hauntings are said to be more residual, mm -hmm. kind of like a broken record of the past. Mm -hmm. People see the same thing all the time. For example, you're not going to know this until you watch the episode of Ghost Encounters from the Perry Mansion. But people have seen the same dude, Oliver, mm. pacing back and forth between the two windows with a candlestick. And that's residual. Um, like if you, if they you don't know to... you're there. They don't respond to you. But typically in tragic situations, um, it tends to be more of an intelligent haunting. Um, they know they're trapped. They're stuck in tragedy. You know? Um, some places you have both. So I'm sure both kind of happen here in Jamestown. Fair enough. There is a one story I'd like to share about Jamestown. Um, in August 1776, so we're jumping forward a little bit, Lydia Ambler married a dashing young soldier named Alexander Maupin. Shortly after their wedding, Alexander was sent off to fight in the American Revolution. According to legend, poor Lydia was always on the lookout for his return. She would sometimes trek the shores of the James River in hopes of seeing him come home. Otherwise, she would keep an eye out for her beloved Alexander from one of the Ambler Mansion windows. During one of her hours of vigilance, Benedict Arnold sent the house on fire. Holy shit. Benedict Arnold's first uh, fought on American side during the Revolutionary War, but then became a British Army uh, general. In Alexander's absence, uh, Colonel John Ambler, one of uh, Edward's sons, handled restorations of the house. Lydia then resumed to her post, just waiting for Alexander to return. However, the young woman grew suspicious. She had not received any news or letters from her husband. She couldn't seem to shake the feeling that Alexander had married her for her money and had simply abandoned her. So, I mean, this tends to happen when people are waiting for their long love in, in war. Like, you have that hope of seeing them again, and then all that worry and fear comes in your mind. So she was not well and people say that she was so angry that she committed suicide by drowning herself in the james river wow. after lady ambler's death and david bullock purchased the estate the house burned again during the civil war but was again promptly rebuilt however however after the third blaze which no. happened in 1895 it was permanently abandoned they just said all right we're not no more this house yeah. is not supposed to be here yep. um who knows, maybe the anger, the fiery anger that was in Lydia is what keeps causing this house to burn down. Never again, never again. 
Yeah, I can see that. You know, if you're if you're so angry in your life that you're willing to destroy yourself, yeah, then everybody else can. Yeah, you know, but suck three times this house <laughs> set ablaze. Um, today, the estate's remains are overseen by the National Park Service and are open to visitors. Archaeological digs have uncovered a mass grave beneath the house, and oh. researchers believe that it's the skeletons belonging to the settlers who died. Uh, in the starving times. <laughs> so this house was built on top of a mass grave from one of the worst times, from the worst time in Jamestown. Wow. This house was doomed from the start. Yeah. like before You don't you build houses on up. top of graves. Um, well, I mean, I guess you could, but you gotta move the bodies. Poltergeist. Right. You can't just move the headstones. Yep. Gotta move but I don't think they even were headstones. No, it was, it was a burial pit. They didn't have time. Yeah. You know. Um, but... These colonists are said to have haunt these grounds. Um, also, Lady Amber's ghost is one that's reported to be seen. She usually emerges from the back of the mansion and then heads towards the James River. She's kind of just taking the same route she always would to find Alexander. So this seems more like, again, like a residual uh, haunting. She's described as an angry woman wearing a gown of the Revolutionary Period. Swirls of unexplainable mist, as well as odd flickering lights, have also been around the Ambler Mansion. Perhaps these are physical manifestations of Lady Ambler's grief, fury, and pain. It's just crazy how that house, literally that house was doomed from the start. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, no wonder it set ablaze three freaking times, and it, it's just awful. Yeah, it just, it wants to be left alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I... I Pretty sure those grounds where all this happened should just be left alone. Yeah, plant some trees, call it a loss. Yeah. It's fine. Um, just let nature have it. Another expedition cannibalism that you probably have read about in school called uh, the Donner Party. My favorite. Your favorite. I well okay. excellent. <laughs> I love I do I love I love historical cannibalism stories. You really do. I do. I love mummies and cannibalism. I'm not messed up, I promise. <laughs> like, I, I love all things dark and twisted, so believe me, and I'm sure most of our listeners do too, so you're not alone. <laughs> we're, all, yeah. we're all spooky people we're here. All, yeah, we're all in the right place. Welcome. If it had worked out differently, the group of settlers that came to be known as the Donner Party would have slipped over the Sierra Nevada into California. But poor planning and a series of bad decisions and early snowstorms caused 60 of the original pioneers to become stranded in the mountains during the winter of 1846. And as hypothermia set and food ran out, many resorted to the greatest of human taboos, cannibalism. After reaching Wyoming, most California-bound pioneers followed a route that swooped north through Idaho before turning south and moving across Nevada. In 1846, however, a dishonest guidebook author named Lansford Hastings was promoting a straighter and supposedly quicker path that cut through the Wasatch Mountains and across Salt Lake Desert. Kind of like a Northwest Passage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trying to find the quick Take route. the shortcut. The short way out. <laughs> there was just one problem. No one had ever traveled this Hastings cutoff with wagons, oh. not even Hastings himself. Oh, Despite the obvious risks and against the warnings of James Clayman, an experienced mountain man, the 20 Donner Party wagons elected to break off from the usual route and gambled upon Hastings' back road. The decision proved disastrous. 
the immigrants were forced to blaze much of the trail themselves by cutting down trees, and they nearly died of thirst during a five-day cross across the salt desert. Wow. Rather than saving time, uh, Hastings' shortcut ended up adding nearly a month to the Donner Party's journey. Oh, my God. If it, was a, if it was a single person or just, like, a small group of people, maybe. Yeah. But when you got 20 wagons going through trails that have never been cut for wagons. Or probably, if, if it's not very often used, they're probably not even cut for, like, foot traffic. Right, exactly. And, like, I And these know. people are, like... Again, I'm, they're I'm just sorry, like regular people. But I would not be able to wander through even just up and down a mountain, one mountain, <laughs> yeah. that didn't have a trail just by a guidebook yeah. to find landmarks and stuff to guide you through. I wouldn't even be able to do that. No, These me, people I, are going across states by, you, from a guidebook and not set footpath trails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and no signs. There are stories about hikers who get lost in the wilderness because yeah. they're like, oh, you know, I'll take a shortcut back to camp. And they're out there for like two days and die of exposure. Yeah. Why you would trust a guidebook versus just going the route that everyone has always taken is beyond me. Sometimes um, you need that anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Despite the Hastings cut off the debacle, uh, most of the Donna Party still managed to reach the slopes of the Sierra Nevada by early November 1846. Only a scant hundred miles remained in their trek, but before the pioneers had a chance to uh, drive their wagons to the mountains, an early blizzard blanketed in the Severas in several feet of snow. Again, a freak snowstorm. This is how it always goes, right? We got a freak winter. We got a freak drought. Yep. Uh, Mountain passes that were navigable just a day earlier soon transformed into icy roadblocks, forcing the Donner Party to retreat to nearby Truckee Lake and wait out the winter in ramshackle tents and cabins. Much of the group's supplies and livestock had already been lost on the trail, and it wasn't long before the settlers began to perish from starvation. Man, this is some Oregon Trail shit right here. Yeah, I like, always died of <laughs> You died of dysentery. dysentery. Yep. Except for real. <laughs> like most pioneer trains, the Donner Party was largely made up of family wagons packed with young children and adolescents. Of the 81 people who became stranded at Truckee Lake, more than half were younger than 18 years old, and six were infants. Oh my god. However, some children did make up the vast majority of the Donner Party's eventual um, survivors. Wow. Uh, one of them, a nine-year-old Isabella Breen, would go on to live until 1935. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. On December 16th, 1846, more than a month after they became snowbound, 15 of the strongest members of the Donner Party strapped on makeshift snowshoes and tried to walk out the mountains to find help. After wandering the frozen landscape for several days, they were left starving on the verge of collapse. The hikers resorted to cannibalism and considered drawing lots for human sacrifice or even have two of the men square off in a duel. Wow. Several members of the party soon died naturally, however, so the survivors roasted and consumed their corpses. There you go. <laughs> we gotta put that roasted in there. We, got, <laughs> we, we can't, we, you know, it's not good enough to know that they ate them. We gotta well, at least they, they were them. eating cooked humans instead of just frozen going, chunks, going, yeah. oh like God. in your story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure was, they didn't have a fire to roast nah, them. Nah, they just went at it with their teeth, I suppose, because they were not, not doing good. Right. But these guys were pretty sane. Yeah, you know, they, they weren't lead poisoned. I mean, they, I'm, like, they, weren't they were as good. sane as you can be. 
you know, after, you after know. Sur- surviving starvation and eating people. Yeah. But the gruesome meat gave them the energy they required, and following a month of walking, seven of the original 15 made it to a ranch in California and helped organize rescue efforts. Wow. Historians would later dub their desperate hike the Forlorn Hope. During the Forlorn Hope expedition, the hiking party included a pair of Indians named Salvador and Lewis, both of whom had joined up with the Donner uh, emigrants shortly before they became snowbound. The natives refused to engage in cannibalism, and Salvador and Lewis later ran off out the fear that they might be murdered once the others ran out of meat. Indeed, when the duo was found days later, exhausted and lying in the snow, a hiking party member named William Foster shot both of them in the head. Oh. The Indians were then butchered and eaten by the hikers. Oh, of course that happened. Yep. It was was the only time during the entire winter that people were recorded murdering for food. Yeah. Like, it's even hypothesized that the Franklin Expedition just, like, ate their dead. They weren't, like, actively shooting people and killing them and eating them. Yeah. So that's, man, that's brutal. Uh, About half or so made it out alive from the original 80-some pioneers who began the Donner Party. Um, it was really hard to find hauntings associated with them because they were on such a long trail mm. and they did bad things throughout the trail, but the site where their main camp was, where they were snowbound, things do happen. Um, thousands of visitors who visit the Donner Memorial State Park get an overpowering feelings of being watched and not being alone. They also smell odors of cooking meat, but not meat that they've ever smelled before, hence human <laughs> flesh, and the sense that there's a campsite nearby, but there is none. Um, there are stories of skiers who have gotten lost and reported seeing a woman who leads them to a camp, and they're in need of help. And so the skiers go off, they go back to where they came from, they come with help, but there's no sign that a camp had ever been there. Mm. So they're kind of seeing the... The lost souls of this Donner party Got a little, trapped like, forever in this horrific experience. It's like a little bit of Resurrection Mary out there. You yeah. Know? That's, that's wild. Because I, I think, I think uh, Ask a Mortician, I think she also did one on the Donner party. Very cool. Yeah. So this was Expedition Cannibalism. Yay. There, it's, it must be an awful experience to have to resort to something as disgustingly gruesome and horrific as cannibalism, yeah. especially of people you know. Yeah, people <laughs> you have have literally gone through the worst time of your life with. Yeah, you know, consistently over several months, and now you have to eat them yeah. or kill them and eat them. That which is worse. Yeah, you know, you look at you, you look somebody in the eye, and you and they're like, "Please don't kill me," and then you're like. Tough. I'm sorry. Hungry. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> man. I gotta eat. Like, or ugh. like digging up a grave that's who knows how long it's been decomposing and rotting oh, to eat it. Can't. Sm- I, I, yeah. It's all in winter, so maybe it's maybe it's not that. What I found really cool about the story you were telling about the Franklin expedition is to how those indigenous people found them, and, and they were like, oh they man, they were just like frozen zombies, and they just left the place they could have could have survived, but they were just so long gone. Yeah, they were just too was messed no, up yeah. to, to really even know how messed up they were. Absolutely crazy. And You know, like, the, the indigenous people showed them more humanity than than they were shown in exactly. the party. Yeah. You know? They it's... helped more 
on all of this than Yeah, they're living out in the Arctic, and they're like, oh, you know, I see you guys are in rough shape. Here's a couple of seals just, like, take yeah. a nap, recapitulate a little bit. Yeah. And they're like, sorry, got to eat Steve. Like, <laughs> going to eat Steve and wander back out into the wilderness. But I'm going to leave my bones behind. Yeah, it's trash. like, just... You guys can clean up, right? It's fine. <laughs> they're probably, literally, they're probably just on autopilot, just yeah. walking and eating, because that's what their mind was focused on, walking yeah. to a destination and eating, and that's all that was left. Yeah, everything else is just kind of gone. Yeah. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Stay spooky. And the man who ate his own boots is a descriptor, not a nickname. <laughs>